listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. I got to wake up this morning, as all of us get to once every four years, to see an oath of office take place, a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, quite a miracle in many respects. And um, while I, as many of you know, find that uh, pomp and ceremony can be uh, an annoyance to me personally, um, I was the renegade Zen student who would mess with the rituals in the morning and so forth try to, to try to crack my uh, fellow uh, Dharma brothers and sisters up, um, especially the liturgy when we would start chanting. I would mess with that particularly. Um, I felt it worthless and useless and all these egoic judgments would swirl and swim. Um, but as my, uh, my time as a monk deepened, I realized that the pomp and ceremony allowed for even the most trivial thing to echo a certain holiness. That ceremony has a way of reminding us that this is a gift. In the case of this morning that I recognize what a, what a gift it was to be born at this time in this place and how my leftward-leaning cynicism can kind of get in my way um, of speaking, uh, uh, speaking about, about politics in any kind of um, unvarnished, unbiased, in any type of Dharma capacity. I was shocked at how listening to the unfolding speeches, at how in many respects, overtly spiritual the day was, um, and how connected it was to precisely what it is we do here at Infinite Smile and countless other sanghas. Uh, when I say sangha, I mean spiritual groups of all faiths do all the time. How the, uh, uh, the person we elected to uh, office again for these next four years took a decidedly different tone, one that I did not expect in his, uh, in his speech, one that uh, called back to what it really means to be we, the people. Fifty years ago, in August of uh, 1963, when uh, Dr. King offered that dream, one that we all share, that how all of us are connected, really, all of us are connected, and should be judged like his kids by the content of their characters rather than the color of their skin, that, uh, that the president 
really made sure that he, and I say this as a, a father of two precious little girls, um, women should be paid what men are paid because we're all created equal. The Declaration of Independence, which is a decidedly individualistic bit of writing, if you've noticed, you know, it's about, this is, this is about the individual, the individual and everything. He used those words very skillfully to also talk about the fact that we are atomized individuals, but we are also a collective whole. E pluribus unum, which is exactly what we're doing as Dharma practitioners. We're recognizing out of many, one. I know for, for me personally, I, I have noticed that um, my, my age group, my Gen X uh, uh, sympathies have really fallen in line with the men and women who have fought so tirelessly and so fearlessly for their rights as gay and lesbians. And to hear him say the word Stonewall, to talk about this little bar in Greenwich Village that wasn't too far from where I used to live, where these tough men stood up to New York's finest and said, no, we will no longer be harassed. And how it's become this symbol for kind of that last little chapter in civil rights and how he brought it up. I thought that was very, very powerful. Symbolized further by um, uh, the inaugural poem that was put forward by a Cuban-American gay male. Cannot believe his name escapes me right now. What, Bl Blanco? Blanco, I think. Was it Blanco? I think so, yeah. Steven? Can't, Can't remember the first name? Well. It was so, so beautiful to me and echoed once again so much of what we are about as a Sangha. Um, I wanted to read the poem. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. Bear with. If you heard it already this morning um, and you didn't like it, tough shit. <laughs> That's kind of what we call that. That's the Dharma term. We call but uh, I think that um, I think that there's so much relevance in just the simple day-to-day -day mind. As, as one of my teachers, Norman Fisher, called it, everyday mind. The everyday is really the unfolding of awakening, and how um, Blanco goes through this in such a beautiful way. He calls it one today. One sun rose on us today, kindled over our shores, peeking over the Smokies, greeting the faces of the Great Lakes, spreading a simple truth across the Great Plains, then charging across the Rockies. One light waking up rooftops under each one, a story told by our silent gestures moving behind windows. My face, your face, millions of faces in morning's mirrors each one yawning to life, crescendoing into our day, pencil yellow school buses, the rhythm of traffic lights, fruit stands, apples, limes, and oranges, arrayed like rainbows, begging our praise. Silver trucks, heavy with oil, or paper, bricks, or milk, teeming over highways alongside us, 
on our way to clean tables, read ledgers, or save lives. To teach geometry, or to ring up groceries as my mother did for 20 years so I could write this poem. All of us is vital as the one light we move through. The same light on blackboards with lessons for the day, equations to solve, history to question, or atoms imagined. The I have a dream we keep dreaming, or the impossible vocabulary of sorrow that won't explain the empty desks of 20 children marked absent today and forever. Many prayers, but one light breathing color into stained glass windows, life into faces of bronze statues, warmth onto the steps of our museums and park benches as mothers watch children slide into the day. One ground, our ground, rooting us to every stalk of corn, every head of wheat sown by sweat and hands, hands gleaning coal or planting windmills in deserts and hilltops that keep us warm, hands digging trenches, routing pipes and cables, hands as worn as my father's cutting sugar cane so my brother and I could have books and shoes. The dust of farms and deserts, cities and plains mingled by one wind, our breath. Breathe. Hear it through the day's gorgeous din of honking cabs, buses launching down avenues, the symphony of footsteps, guitars, and screeching subways, the unexpected songbird on your clothesline. Here, squeaky playground swings, trains whistling, or whispers across cafe tables. Here, the doors we open for each other all day, saying hello, shalom, buongiorno, Howdy, namaste, or buenos dias. In the language my mother taught me, in every language spoken into one wind, carrying our lives without prejudice, as these words break from my lips. One sky. Since the Appalachians and Sierras claimed their majesty, and the Mississippi and Colorado worked their way to the sea, thank the work of our hands, weaving steel into bridges, finishing one more report for the boss on time, stitching another wound or uniform, the first brushstroke on a portrait, or the last floor on the Freedom Tower jutting into the sky that yields to our resilience. One sky, toward which we sometimes lift our eyes tired from work, some days guessing at the weather of our lives, some days giving thanks for a love that loves you back, sometimes praising a mother who knew how to give or forgiving a father who couldn't give what you wanted. We had home through the gloss of rain or weight of snow or the plum blush of dusk, but always home, always under one sky, our sky, and always one moon, like a silent drum tapping on every rooftop and every window of one country, all of us. Facing the stars of hope, a new constellation waiting for us to map it waiting for us to name it.
together. Sounds like us. Mapping a new constellation together. Only a Buddha with a Buddha realizes enlightenment. It's not done alone. It's done together. We, these people. Let's sit for a little bit. And uh, recall asking, uh, get, get, excuse me, getting the question at a Q and A once. What, why, why do we meditate? What's the purpose? What's the purpose of this meditation? And there are a couple of ways you could answer that. I, I will share with you that that meditation is designed to help us still our bodies and quiet our minds. And when we still our bodies and we quiet our minds, we're able to more readily see any and all disturbances that come out of that still body and quiet mind. When we are still, we can more readily see the stark relief of movement. And this is what the mind is. The mind is movement. Some people prefer to think of it as mind is a disturbance. <laughs> but we go from this space, in Zen we call it no mind, <clears throat> the space between our thoughts, this utterly still point. And from there, we're able to kind of look and see what it is that's going on. You cannot be in that place you cannot be in that still no-mind place without simultaneously being in what we would call the present or the now. Anything that is now obliterates any addiction we have towards past or future. It just it can't exist. In fact, mind, typically, can only function if it's got something in the past to hang on to or something in the future to plan for. And this orientation, this still point, always gives us this opening, this freshness, which is exactly what Suzuki Roshi referred to when he talked about beginner's mind. This openness to whatever is then gives us this opportunity to kind of expand even further into this big mind, what we call big mind. Big mind, no mind, same thing. Lots of words, 
but still, it's this. We're, there's a directionality towards this, and it's going in every direction all at once. So it's designed to help us physicalize, manifest this conscious, intentional awareness. It's designed to do that. And in so doing, I guess you could say the other reason, the other reason why we meditate is so that we recognize that we cannot get any closer to truth or to spirit than we already are. It's designed to fail in taking us closer to God, so to speak. We start recognizing we can't get any closer than we already are. And so after years and years and years often, we find these truths to be self-evident. <laughs> that all meditators are created equal. And that ultimately what we're doing is pursuing life, liberty with a capital L, and this pursuit of awakening begins to fall apart. It's no longer a pursuit, it just is. It's just an openness to the chance and folly of life. A recognition that, my God, there are no problems. There are only situations. There are no problems. There are only situations. I am here right where I should be. <laughs> that there's no such thing ultimately as the wrong place in the wrong time. It's always the right place in the right time. Fear becomes something. When we start recognizing that there are no problems, we start developing a sense that it's simultaneous too. It's like everything can be taken from me and will be taken from me. Therefore, if everything's going to be taken from me, and I've developed kind of a quiet patience with this experience called life. I'm not going to fear anything being taken from me. Fear begins to really, really kind of, and all thoughts related to fear begin to kind of fall away. And if you don't have fear, you can't be angry. Anger is just fear in disguise. So what happens? The, the, the whole person becomes exactly somebody we normally like to hang out with. Someone who's a conscious manifestation of love, kindness, care, fire, passion. But they're not stuck. They're not stuck. If you've met somebody who really isn't stuck, but also isn't just kind of like just a pushover, you've met somebody like that, they really are kind of just a, it's an amazing, it's an amazing fire, amazing color that they burn. So I wanted to kind of talk about how practice kind of gets us, it goes through, you know, stages. And I, I've spoken about this before, but I, I wanted to kind of, um, I wanted to kind of build upon it because uh, there are, are different traps at each of the levels. And uh, so I'm hoping that I can speak to each person here, those of you that have been meditating beginning tonight, and those of you that have been meditating uh, you know, for quite some time. If we look at uh, 
uh, I call it recognition, is our first recognition is when we start seeing, you know, something is missing. I'm suffering so much of the time, or I'm in pain, or my life has just thrown an amazing hand at me that I can't play. I've lost everything, you know, whatever. There's a recognition uh, or of a need for some type of spiritual work uh, or a recognition that there is something else. For me, that was certainly <coughs> the case. Um, I spent so much of my uh, beloved collegiate life, I really did enjoy enjoy my college life, but it was really about, uh, it was about, a lot of it was about, you know, the academic pursuits, really nourishing the mind, understanding things, and then the recreational aspects of it were, it was largely beer and skirts, you know, and that was just my, I thought that's what you were supposed to do. And what I recognized is no matter, no matter how much, you know, beer I drank or how much tail I chased or whatever, there was never enough. It would never be enough that that game wasn't going to lead me anywhere as a dead end. And that's when my approach uh, uh, towards some type of spiritual meaning really took off. It's like, okay, uh, that ain't going to work. Maybe this will. And I happen to, you know, fall into kind of a cool, a cool situation. This isn't to say I don't, don't like beer. Um, uh, I hate skirts. Uh, teasing, but they, um, it's not—it's not to say that that like I have been cut off from the neck down at all. But the approach towards that aspect of life has shifted radically, and it does for most of us. Indeed, you look at the spiritual patterning, how people kind of go through these developmental stages. At the point of recognition, they're usually in pain. Something ain't right. And they hear somebody say, hey, you know what? It is right. Trust yourself. Shut up. Sit still. For me, that was really enticing. Because it wasn't about them being closer to God than me. It was about them having experienced something that I could see and smell in them. It was different. It's so recognition stage. Sometimes we, we refer to it as uh, kind of the dip into the stream. We decide to kind of test the waters, so to speak. This is oftentimes uh, the dark night of the senses, we sometimes call that. The dark night of the senses, where we actually, the sense experience is really negative and we want out of it. And what happens is we start going into this meditative state and suddenly we're kind of freed from it. After recognition, after we'd start doing it a while, there's this really interesting commonality that we see. It's the stage of resistance. And that's where people, they've been doing it a while, typically, and they start recognizing, you know what? Uh, I'm not digging this so much. This is hard. And the way they do it, first of all, usually is to back out of the actual meditation practice itself. They no longer get the feeling they got uh, when they first started meditating. So it's like, well, very natural to kind of just say, well, maybe instead of meditating every day, I'll, I'll meditate six days a week and then four days a week and then it's once a month and then, you know, that type of thing. This is often, is really quite common. 
because we're being put in touch with the very things that we've, in many cases, spent years trying to hide or avoid. And meditation shows us that we can't avoid, that there is no hiding, that in fact hiding is lying. And that when we lie by hiding, we're lying to ourselves and everyone else. We are shielding our own eyes, our own hearts, our own minds from the very truth that's knocking at our door. We, we run. It's very natural because that truth will radically alter the way it is that we ultimately participate in the world. So this resistance, while quite natural, okay, while quite natural and powerful, we sometimes call uh, the wade into the stream or the dark night of the soul. This is what uh, St. John of the Cross referred to as the dark night of the soul. It's when you're into it and it's, it's resistant. There's... there's uh, ego is really being called, called uh, onto the carpet. We begin to develop a different sense. We begin to study much more about ourselves, and it ain't all pretty. But this eventually gives way. We go from this place, this awareness, this dark night of the soul, we move into another direction. And I refer to it as renunciation. If you, if you look at what a renunciate is, we, typically we have, there's so much baggage affiliated with the term renunciation um, because a renunciate is somebody who's denied the world. In this case, it's not about denying, it's about letting go. And there is a point when someone's resistance and their level of resistance and the intensity of that resistance bursts open and actually... It's like it pops, like a balloon. If any of you have been on a long retreat, a long meditation retreat, sometimes your bodies can be like so tense, so tense, so tense, and then all of a sudden it's like something happens, and it's like, oh. It's the same thing with our meditative work, with our practice. We've gone from this resistance place now into renunciation, where we really kind of let go. We let go. We're no longer trying to make anything go a certain way or, or move in a certain direction. We're not trying to fix anything. We're not trying to break anything. We're not trying to hang on. We're not trying to let go. We just are. An embodiment of surrender. And this is the swim. This is the swim. This uh, is the dark night of the self. Because we actually have begun to chip away enough at this structure we call selfhood that other stuff is beginning to come in. That we're no longer going by the typical practices that we've always gone by. That there has been kind of a radical shift that we are really able to let go and see everything as it is with a deepening clarity. Not pushing anything away. We're standing right in the middle of it as it is, fearlessly, continually. We start recognizing that our meditation practice isn't something that just occurs on Monday nights. It's not something that just occurs on our cushion. It's something that throughout the day we can kind of check in. We continually check in, especially when it's required, especially when we're in a situation where all sorts of tension is brought up or all sorts of things are tweaked. 
either in us or in another person, where our presence is beckoned. We're able to give it. We're able to be that presence and that surrender and that letting go and that renunciation. And in that renunciation, something kind of cool happens. Um, kind of this fourth stage. This fourth stage of meditation. And the fourth stage of meditation, um, rather than it being a, a, a swim or a wade or a dip, we actually um, we dissolve. And yet we are here. E pluribus unum. Out of many, one. There's a oneness. There's a flow state. Okay? And that flow state, the quality of that flow state might be seen as a smile. Nothing is being done. Nothing needs to be done. There's an embodiment of this work continually. Effortlessly. We still practice, but practice is part of who and what we are, as opposed to something we do. It's just the way we participate in the world. In those moments, strung together, we start seeing that a certain kind of dawn breaks. that that one light that we spoke of allows us to kind of traverse even the most difficult, the one today. We are able to participate consciously and constructively in the impossible vocabulary of sorrow that won't explain the empty desks of 20 children marked absent today and forever. We participate as the one ground, the one air, the one light, the hearing, the seeing. There is dissolution and once at the same time there is deep participation as individual. There is a collectivized we and there is I. But none of it is something that keeps us small or bound. We are no longer addicted to any of it. We are a free functioning flow. Conscious, participatory, but not caught. Which ultimately kind of brings us right back to where we started. We are, and we recognize that we are form, but we are informed. And so my hope in kind of offering up this, this talk, which I've given in one form or another probably a hundred times, is that we can see that while at once there is a path, there is a trajectory to this, that there is stuff that we kind of follow. There's a lead, so to speak, or a, uh, you know, we, we, follow a, we follow a certain path, um, that the path itself ultimately gives way that the path itself 
leads us right back to where we've always been. That we are always actually in precisely the right place at the right time for exactly what's needed. And with that in mind, it can give us a renewed purpose to how it is we meet each and every single moment. If we don't avoid, if we don't avoid what's being put in front of us, we can actualize fully what it is that we are meant to do. Except now we do it with an intentionality, with a certain internal blessing that has nothing to do with aggrandizement, that has nothing to do with reward, that has everything to do with just being generous, being loving, manifesting grace all the time. questions? There you are. Hey. How do you, how do you handle confusion? <laughs> Could you clarify the question? situation <laughs> 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 How do you break the cycle of confusion when we react to feeling like we're misunderstood? It sounds like what you're asking is, how should I react when I'm misunderstood or I misunderstand? Does that kind of make sense? I think, first of all, it's a testament to this great uh, organism, the human organism, that we have ears. And so listening, I think, becomes the most important thing we can do. And if we misinterpret cues based on our listening and our seeing, and we realize we've misinterpreted, call, it, call the truth for what it is. So, uh, like, one of the things that has always, I've talked about this before, I believe, in Sangha, but one of the things that always saves a comic when they're on stage um, is when they tell a joke, let's say, or they finish a story, and no one has laughed, okay? When they can pick up on that, and then call it as it is and say something along the lines of, wow, that went over well. That's funny, isn't it? Because it speaks to a truth that everybody in the room is sharing, right? They're not avoiding it and reacting to it and creating more karmic mess. Instead, they're laying down the truth and the truth is funny. 
So my recommendation is if you are finding yourself, if you, if you find yourself being misunderstood, <laughs> ask questions, okay, first of all. And then if you say something that is out of reaction from that place of insecurity, it almost always will cause pain. It will almost always cause mess. So instead of reacting, listen, and then to use a Covey term, you can proactively engage with whatever is actually happening. So it becomes a meditation, doesn't it? When you're confused, ask questions. Ask those questions. And then you'll at least have the tools with which you can build conversation, build connectivity. Does that kind of make sense? Work with that. All right. Report back. Cool. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. <laughs> yes, sir? Uh, how about restlessness in meditation? Restlessness in meditation? Yeah, what about it? Where you just, where you're uncomfortable, you're moving around, you're... Oh, so it's the question, what what practice can one do to help? Okay, so this, I hope everybody in this room is listening right now. This is a really, this is a cool one. Practice not moving in the face of the restlessness. It sounds impossible, but I, I remember I brought this up last week. Were you here last week? Do you remember I was talking about um, our best pal, Barb? I talked about you, Barb. You did? Good. Um, uh, we, I talked about how, how Barb was this wiggle machine and, and it was like, you know, she wouldn't stop. And I remember sitting there like, because, you know, I'd spy every once in a while, just kind of make sure everybody's doing okay. I'm like, my God, she, <laughs> she's just flopping all over the place. And now she's like, you know, the rock. Um, you t <laughs> and, and, and you tend to do, you tend to do quite well from, from what I've observed. The, there's an impulse to move that can be studied. And one of the most useful things to me as a practitioner early on was when I had, I had a teacher who I actually, I was sitting next to in an extended retreat. And so I couldn't move or else teach was going to snap, you know? And she was right there. So so I'm, I'm sitting there and it was like I was utterly confined and it was so, it was just crazy making. But once that craziness, and it, it settles down. And once it, it settled down on its own, once I just refused to move. I got to study the impulse to move. And my impulse was I always wanted to feel just a little bit better. I always wanted to just, oh, a little bit this way, a little bit this, oh yeah. And you know what? I was never comfortable. But when I committed to the, to the stillness itself in the face of the impulse to move, pretty soon the impulse gave way to the comfort of stillness. And I realized I didn't have to move. And it was okay that the mind and the body had both settled down and my meditation immediately <coughs> deepened. It immediately deepened at that moment when I just said, I'm not moving. And this is one of the reasons why if you sit in a chair, it's really good not to cross 
not to cross your legs or anything or, or lean back. It's really good to be kind of in an attentive, as best you can. I know these chairs are difficult, but an attentive upright space and not move. The, the tendency is when we sit in our habitual ways that we tend to, you know, shift and, you know, so forth. And there's no crime in that. But the idea here is to develop kind of a discipline where we unify the body and the mind. And if we're going to still the mind, we want to still the body and vice versa. So that would be my recommendation. So, so an itch, you just let it go. Pay attention to the itch fully. And I guarantee you what will happen with that itch, it'll go away. Without, without touching it, it'll go away. It'll get really intense, and that's kind of cool. You get to watch the intensity of the itch, and then it gives way, and it kind of comes back in waves, and then it goes away. And then pretty soon, your mind goes, you know what? The guy's not going to itch it. Screw it. It's like, funk, it's gone. You know? Ego learns its lesson. And then once it's an itch, it'll do something else. For me, it was a knee and back pain. And then that went away, you know? And they come back, too, you know? They come back. I had a... I had a, <laughs> I had a itch this morning, right, on this earlobe. I mean, it's funny you bring this up, because I was just, like, going nuts this morning. I mean, I'm sitting in meditation this morning, and it's like, well, there's something to practice with. But damn, this, it was intense. It was really intense. But it was more to play with, more to practice with. So that would be the, that would be the teachings. Really, help, really helpful in, in, in getting your, your practice to go to the next level. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what faith means? Mm -hmm. That's what faith means. Faith is a relational encouragement. It's where we... <laughs> it's when... Have you ever been in a situation where, where you looked at, and like authentically felt, oh, okay, if that person can do it, I definitely can do it? Have you ever felt that? Oh, yeah. That's faith. That's faith. Yeah, yeah. It's just, and and uh, and I think that that's that's true in spiritual, um, in in spiritual practice as well. That the more exposure you have to a broader spiritual community, the more you recognize, you know what? This can be done. This can be done. Um, this is not an impossibility. This awakening stuff is available. It's available. And it's happening more and more and more to more and more people all the time. The, the context with which we take that awakening and move it with care into the world, that's another issue. That's something I think we need to be very, very, very clear about. But yeah, yeah. So have faith. <laughs> Yes. Meditation with six weeks. Nice. He slept. 
My point is, I'm having trouble because he, it's not for him. Okay, okay. But to belittle what we do, mm -hmm. to think this is nonsense, mm -hmm. this is hard. I bet he doesn't think it's not. No, oh, I know it's not. When I talked to you once on that retreat, you know, I said I think he's having a child with this. Mm -hmm. And I explained to you something about him, and he said, oh, he's got a doing mind. He has a doing mind? Yeah. Is that what I said? He said that. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think if, first of all, if somebody, if you ever feel belittled by somebody, I think authentic honest expression, this goes, kind of goes back to, you know, what Stan was saying, that, that articulated really clearly, not from a place of anger, but from a place of hurt. That's, that can be heard much more easily than when hurt goes to fear, which turns into anger. Anger usually meets anger, but hurt can usually uh, appeal to the better angels of our nature as Lincoln has said, mm -hmm. second inaugural. I'm just going to go U.S. history reference all night, okay? <laughs> so so that, that, I think, is really important, because that, that's hurtful, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing I would recommend is I wouldn't say a word about it to him at all. This is scary stuff. Yeah, and it's scary. Yeah. Well, it's scary. For, it's not just him. It just says it doesn't resonate with me. Well, but that. Resonate. But that's that's okay. So then the real practice is: can you let go of his lack of resonance with this? Well, you're saying don't talk about him with him I, too much. The philosophy. Like, what's the dinner? We'll mm -hmm. talk about everything you talk about. And he just like, are we done yet? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that. So my recommendation is. That's not being kind to him, is it? No. So. Well, I guess not. <laughs> uh, yeah. What I would. Yeah, he doesn't like it, and so what I would what I would recommend then is to not let your practice, and this goes to everybody in this room. I was going to ask, like people who have partners. Do, listen, listen, Cindy. Do not let your practice ever be predicated on anybody else's. You don't need anybody else's practice for yours to flourish. Okay? You don't need to be externally supported by a partner for this to work. Straight up. I'm just telling you that. It doesn't. And so what it, what it becomes then is a deeply personal, a deeply personal path toward impersonal surrender. And that encompasses all the people that tend to poo-poo or belittle. Mm -hmm. It becomes, it's not about them. This is your journey. And I would also say whenever I come up at dinner tables, I tend to cause fights. So I would, <laughs> you know, I would make sure that, am I? <laughs> Potentially. Yeah, right. <laughs> Potentially. Right. Right. I think it's, it's really, it's very, very important that, that the, and easy for people to get really thrilled with kind of the things that they're uncovering within themselves and about life and so forth, and they want to share it, and the other people in general, partners specifically, in many cases, can be like, like you said, are you done? And, and while that, that hurts, it's also a great way to establish, this is 
mine, and that's yours, and we can still parallel play. You know? Yeah. Um, and they also continually give you stuff to practice with, <laughs> don't they? Partners give us so much to practice with. Very much. Yep, yeah. right. So. It gets more and more into the Judaism. Mm-hmm. More and more involved with that whole thing. All, that's okay. All of it. That's fine. No, but see, oh, wait, wait. But see what you, the, the motion you just made? That's the resistance yeah. that prevents opening. Okay? So being okay with his non okayness is great. That's the path. Mm -hmm. It's being utterly tolerant and recognizing that it's not a problem. It's not a problem. It's just a situation. And there's grief that can, you know go with that because it's like you want to be able to share this but that's why we're here okay that's what sangha is and that's why i think it's so important because you can't do this alone it's with it's with you don't necessarily need a partner to do it with you but you do when you have a, a commingling of spiritual friends total shortcut total shortcut that the teaching and the teacher those three things and we're lucky because in this area, there are tons of people that I think are really good teachers, okay, including James Baraz. He's great. Okay? There's teaching that's available to us unlike any other time in human history. The most amazing, esoteric, and basic teachings of all the traditions are being, they're flooding us. They're here now. Okay? And one of the things that I have found uh, in the decade that Infinite Smile has been around, is that this thing we have here is very precious. There are a lot of people who will do their podcasts and so forth solo from their, you know, their room or, or whatever. Um, but the fact that we're able to do this every week with lots of people all the time, and it's continued, unabated, is nothing short of a miracle. It's just really amazing. And I feel so fortunate to, you know, be a part of it. So I feel very lucky. So, so we have all the componentry. We have all the things we need. Everybody has everything they need to awaken right now. Thanks for coming. Can I give specifics on the retreat? Specifics on the retreat? Yeah, we got a retreat. Yeah. Oh. Okay.